Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. And no matter what you think, you are never alone. Hello and welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 48, Growing Medical Needs That Are Requiring Public Attention. As we educate ourselves on our bodies and what we need to know for our personal journeys through cancer, the different flavors of cancer, the treatment options available, the support opportunities that are there, and so on and so on, when we do these things, we become empowered and stronger, and ready for that voyage ahead. And we may need to be the ones that walk that road, but we don't have to do it alone. I've said that a thousand times. We don't have to do it alone. As a society, as a community, we need to do more. We need to do more to shine that light and to make a real difference in the generations to come. And one way that we can do this is by taking a step back and looking at this larger picture, looking at things From the community's standpoint, what are some of these growing medical needs? What resources are currently available? And what gaps do we still need to close? Where is it that we can point public attention to and advocacy to so that we can bring about change, so that we can make that generation that comes after us have it easier and easier until, of course, we land ourselves that cure one day, which is something that we are all obviously wanting. But until that day, how can we make things easier for our children and our children's children? Here are some of the points of concerns that I have noticed with all of the interviews and research that I've been working on. We definitely need to continue pushing forward and making strides with research to try to find ourselves that cure one day. Absolutely no doubt about that. But in today's episode, I want to talk about two of the biggest barriers that I've noticed with a lot of the work that I've done. Those include education and accessibility to care. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at how those two barriers are seen in issues like understanding cancer basics and understanding cancer risk, breast density, genetic testing, Working with insurance, the uninsured, underinsured, and those with insurance, what are those barriers that exist there? We'll also talk briefly about how certain biases and and fear of being judged can, in, in some cases, deter people from seeking proper treatment. And then also bridging the gap between the medical field and the psychosocial field because surviving cancer is not just about those physical hurdles. There are those emotional threads as well. When I say education, I'm not saying that people aren't smart. I like to think I'm smart, but there are still things that I didn't know and there are things I have yet to learn. It's about keeping an open mind. And I've learned a lot through my own journey. I think that we could all stand to learn and understand more because information empowers us. I used to think prior to my own cancer that cancer was just simply named for where it was found in the body. So bone cancer found in your bones, liver cancer, liver, breast cancer found in your breasts. 
but there are, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, so many different flavors of breast cancer, and the treatment that you get varies accordingly. So when I'm talking about education, I'm talking about arming us all. Even if you are the most genius person in the world, we could all stand to learn a little bit more around this subject. So where exactly are some of these gaps that I've come across? In regards to cancer basics and risk assessment, early detection is critical. According to the American Cancer Society, the five-year survival rate for breast cancer caught in stage zero or stage one, that five-year survival rate is over 90%. However, if you don't go and you don't catch it early and you are diagnosed at a later stage or stage four metastatic breast cancer, so it's already moved, then the five-year survival rate is 20%. I have come across cancer patients who also don't realize that when cancer becomes metastatic, that there is no cure. Women that are living with stage four metastatic breast cancer will be receiving treatments for the duration of their life. Another point that we as a society need to consider is how can we show up for those who are living with stage four metastatic breast cancer? What are their needs and how can we help them as a society meet those needs? Early detection is critical, but still I've come across women who are fearful of going to the doctor. They want to put their heads in the sand or cover up their ears and no, 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 no. If I can't see you, you can't hurt me. Well, here's the truth of the matter. Whether or not you're paying attention to it and going to the doctor and getting your scans or not, that's not stopping whatever could possibly be growing inside of you from growing. If you go and you get screened, then you find it early and then you know, and then you can make decisions accordingly. And if you catch it early, then that five-year survival rate is 90% as opposed to 20 Talking in general about accessibility to care, it comes down to money. Money, 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 money. Cancer treatments are expensive. To put this into perspective, an MRI itself can easily be $1,000. One round of chemo, depending on which cocktail you get, it could be $30,000. A mastectomy could easily be $100,000. So for those that are uninsured and underinsured, that could present a problem. However, there are programs that are out there to assist this group of individuals, but all you have to do is ask. You have to pick up the phone. Don't bury your head in the sand and think, "Mm, I'll deal with it later. You get your screenings. You call, you ask, you see what program is available near you. How? You can pick up the phone and call your local Komen affiliate and see what they have available. You can call your local United Way. You can contact your family connection, and if they don't necessarily have the resource right there in their pocket, they have access to people who do, and they can hopefully put you in touch with the appropriate resource for you and your needs. Bottom line, there are programs out there to help. You need to be proactive and pick up the phone and don't stick your head in the sand. Ask. Get those early screenings. And even for those that do have insurance coverage, There can be some issues here as well as far as what insurance is going to cover what kind of treatment or what medicine or what their requirements are for needing referrals and so on and so on. So people need to be familiar with their own policies. 
I've spoken with a handful of women that have told me that at one point in time or another during their treatment, they have somehow gotten the runaround with their insurance company. And maybe it won't happen, but if it does, you need to be your number one advocate. You need to know your policy. You need to know what's supposed to happen and what's not supposed to happen and speak up. For me, I was recommended to have something called an Oncotype test done. This test was going to be used to determine whether or not chemo would be effective on my particular tumor. High Oncotype scores typically mean that chemo would be effective and low Oncotype scores means that they would be less effective. However, Oncotypes are deemed genetic testing and genetic testing is not covered by a lot of insurance companies. So when it came to me and I'm sitting at this crossroads of my treatment, I am told that chemo is in my best interest because they've weighed everything about me and my body and my cancer And yet, they wanted to do the Oncotype test to help determine where they would go from there with treatment. And my insurance company, who had already approved a port placement for my chemo, a port is that little door that allows you to get that medicine without having to get an IV every time. I had that surgery. My insurance company had approved that, and I had that port placed beneath my skin, already done. And I was waiting on approval for chemo and I was denied the Oncotype testing because it was considered genetic testing and wasn't covered. And when I was waiting for the chemo to go through the insurance and get approval, I was told that it was denied. I was denied chemo until the insurance company received the results to an Oncotype test that they weren't even covering because it was genetic testing. And yet, they had already approved my port. My point is, is that even with insurance, hiccups can happen. And you need to be willing to be your advocate to iron out those hiccups and to fight for whatever treatment it is that you are needing and that your policy should be covering. Education and accessibility to care are also issues at play when it comes to talking about breast density. So what on earth is breast density? Well, first of all, breast density is describing how tightly packaged the tissue is inside your breast. And you cannot discern from touch alone whether or not your breasts are dense or not. The only way to know that for absolute certain is through mammography. And when you have a mammogram done, they can see whether or not that tissue is spread out or whether or not it's really, really close together. If it's really, really close together, then that is dense and it's given a grade. In the state of Georgia, we have ABCD. Dense breasts make it hard to find cancer. Margie Singleton, we did an episode with her earlier on. Margie changed Georgia law with Margie's law by having the legislation now says that when a mammogram is done in the state of Georgia, they have to put on the mammogram report what your grade of your breast density is and what that means. Margie was telling me that when she had her mammogram done, she was diagnosed with cancer. And the day she was diagnosed, they looked at the mammogram from that day and you could not see her cancer. It was hiding. I was told that it's like driving through a snowstorm with your windshield wipers on turbo. You can't see anything. So if you have dense breasts, mammograms make it hard to detect cancer. And two, dense breasts in and of itself is also a risk factor. 
knowing that and understanding that is crucial. But women need to be mindful of what the legislation is in their own state. There are 38 states at this moment in time that have dense breast legislation in place. Not all of them do. So a question that you need to know is what does your state say about dense breasts? And when you go and you have your mammogram done, you ask them, hey, what are mine? What is the grade? What are my options from here? Have that very candid conversation with your own provider. Know about breast density and know about the laws in your own state. Once we educate the public on what breast density is and what that means for them personally, there's still another barrier. There's another layer that needs to have our attention drawn towards as well. And that's around the accessibility to care. Cost, again, down to money. And then also the third layer on top of that in regards to breast density would be logistics and scheduling. So let's talk quickly about cost. I was recently talking with a physician who said, all right, so we educate women. We let them know what their breast density is. But then the next question, when you have that candid conversation with your provider, hey, am I dense? Am I not dense? What are my options? That next layer on top is, what do you do about it? Who's going to pay for that? Because if a patient finds out that they're dense and they get recommended for increased screenings, which would typically include mammograms and MRIs alternating, what happens if their insurance doesn't want to cover it? And again, MRIs are expensive. MRIs could easily be $1,000 compared to mammograms, which are on average about $100. In the state of Georgia, I recently heard about a new legislation that's being proposed by the House around insurance and identifying high-risk women. So high-risk women would be women who have over a 20% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. How do you know what your risk is? Then you talk to your doctor about something called the Tyre Cusick model. They put in a whole bunch of data about your breast density, whether or not you have a hereditary mutation, your hormone use, your age at your first period, your family history, and so on and so on, and it generates a score. And if you have an over 20% lifetime risk, you are considered high risk. So this law is centered around insurance and identifying those high-risk women and the need for annual mammograms and MRI screenings and coverage. That is huge. It is not a law yet. It is being proposed. And that is also in the state of Georgia. So what's going on in your own state? That's a question to ask. That's information to find out. Then the third layer on top of this breast density concerned involves scheduling and logistics. Trying to figure out how to get everybody that might possibly need an MRI in and on the schedule in a timely manner is not necessarily going to be an easy feat. How to address this concern is something that really needs public attention and serious thought. I don't have the answer, but I know that conversations about this issue need to be had. Okay, then what about Medicare and Medicaid? Here are more issues that need to be talked about as well, because what they cover and what they don't cover might be different than your previous insurance. 
When I interviewed our lymphedema expert in episode number 41 about lymphedema, she talks to us about some of the strategies for managing this condition, and one of them is a sleeve. It's a compression garment, but it's not one that you get like for athletics or whatever. It's different. It's highly specialized, and a lot of insurance companies will cover them for women, but she did mention that Medicare and Medicaid unfortunately do not. What else do they cover or not cover? That is a conversation, again, that needs to be had. Still another gap with education and accessibility to care centers around genetic testing. Understanding biology and basic genetics is kind of a big deal. It can be life-saving, so pay attention in that high school biology class. And if you missed it or if it's been a while, then go back and listen to some of our previous episodes. But I've had highly educated individuals who have made comments that still have a gap in their understanding of genetics in general. For example, I knew somebody that had the BRCA mutation, and she had inherited it from her mother. She also has two little girls of her own, and the question that she and I always have is the concern for our children to inherit that mutation. Here's the thing. If you have the chromosome with that mutation on it, then you have all that comes with that mutation. It doesn't get diluted from one generation to the next. Some people have been under the impression that from mother to daughter to children that that mutation somehow gets diluted. Genetics doesn't work that way. It's you get a 50% chance of inheriting the chromosome that has the mutation or the one that doesn't because you get half of your chromosomes from your mom and the other half from your dad. And it depends on which chromosome went into which sperm and into which egg and then which combination happened in the creation of you. I also heard of a woman that did genetic testing and was negative for the BRCA mutations, and so she wrongfully assumed that she was not at risk for cancer, and she skipped her mammograms. If you have a hereditary mutation, such as one of those BRCA mutations, then yes, you are at an elevated risk for getting breast cancer, Me, I had an 84% chance. My friend, she had a 92% chance. The mutations themselves do not translate to you have cancer. They just mean that your risk is higher. And on the flip side, if you don't have that mutation, that doesn't mean you're not going to get cancer. It is one out of eight women. And it does not discriminate. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter whether or not you play bingo on Friday nights or not. It doesn't care. Breast cancer affects one out of eight women, regardless of whether or not they have that hereditary mutation. Those that have the mutation are at an elevated risk, but it's one out of eight women regardless. Another woman I spoke with had ovarian cancer, and her father died from breast cancer. Yes, folks, men can get breast cancer. In fact, if a man has breast cancer, red flags start to go off and make us wonder, do they have a mutation, specifically one of those BRCA mutations? Well, for this particular woman, if her father had breast cancer and she had ovarian cancer, which is also linked to those mutations, it sends off little warning sirens going, hmm, you are a candidate for genetic testing. You really need to be mindful. A lot of people also don't realize that 
these mutations, if you look at your family tree, you might not necessarily see everybody having breast cancer, but maybe you're seeing trends of ovarian cancer or melanoma or prostate cancer because men that have the mutation have an elevated chance of getting prostate cancer. So geneticists are going to look at all of the above to examine your risk. And you need to be mindful of that as well. Me, for example, I didn't have any family history at all of breast or ovarian cancer. Another thing that people don't realize is that that mutation can travel down that paternal line. So it can go hidden for generations What if you got it from your father, who got it from his father, father's father, and so on and so on? The BRCA mutations are not on the sex chromosomes, which means that they can be inherited from one's mother or father. And yes, men can have the mutation. Does that mean that they're going to have breast cancer? Not necessarily. But can men get breast cancer? Absolutely. What about genetic testing and accessibility to care? Well, money. Again, down to money. Genetic testing is expensive and it's not covered by most insurance companies. I paid $375 was the contracted amount that I had between myself and the lab that was going to do genetic testing. I did it through Marianne. They filed with my insurance company, which of course denied the claim because it wasn't covered. And the insurance company sent me an explanation of benefits for over $6,000, none of which was going to get applied towards the deductible. Thank God I had that initial contracted amount with the lab, and that is all that I ended up having to pay. But genetic testing is expensive, and that can deter people from wanting to have that done as well, especially if their insurance provider doesn't cover it. Another thing I want to add about genetic testing, people have asked me if I will have my children tested. Since I have the BRCA2 mutation, they each have a 50% chance of having inherited it. Will I have them tested? And honestly, it depends on how the laws are written as they become of age. Something to keep in mind, as the laws are currently written, my children are entitled to have surveillance done starting 10 years prior to my age at diagnosis. So at the age of 26, they can begin screenings. However, if they were to do genetic testing and they were negative for the mutation, then they would go into the general population's risk category and have to wait till they were 40 for a baseline. If, on the other hand, they were positive for the mutation, then they could be denied life insurance. People that test positive for genetic mutations could potentially be denied life insurance. It's not guaranteed but it is a possibility. This is, again, points for discussion. And what do we as a community do about it? How do we help fill in that hole? Had I not done genetic testing when I did and how I did, my cancer would have killed me. I would have been dead before 40. Because I did genetic testing, I was able to do the surveillance. I had the mammogram. It missed it. I had an MRI, which found not one, not two, but three masses and I had a micromet to the lymph nodes. None of that would I have known as early as I did had I not done genetic testing. So could I potentially be denied life insurance for having done it? Maybe, but if I hadn't done the testing, the cancer would have killed me. There are also some biases out there in the general public that can potentially deter people from receiving care that they need. 
I think that we need to be educated on this and we all could stand to have a little bit more compassion. The one in particular that I'm thinking of that I have heard a handful of times involves those, again, that have a hereditary mutation, so like BRCA1 or BRCA2, and they choose to have something called a prophylactic mastectomy. That's when they have a mastectomy done, all of their breast tissue is removed, and they don't have cancer. And there may be some biases in the public eye that need a dose of reality. For example, Angelina Jolie, she has one of those BRCA mutations, and she went ahead and had a prophylactic mastectomy. And this kind of paved the way for other women to be able to speak up and go, okay, well, yes, yes, I'm afraid I'm going to do it too. I don't want this risk. And some people refer to this as the, quote, Angelina Jolie effect. And that can be hurtful and kind of stingy remarks when you hear them and you're sitting in a similar shoes to her. She had an elevated risk. She opted to have that mastectomy to get out ahead of it so that she could go on and live her life. I even heard a politician once say something to the effect of, we don't want women going to cut all of themselves up and apart just because there's fear. And here's the thing, there's more to it than just fear. Let's put this into perspective. If you have one of these hereditary mutations and your lifetime risk of getting cancer is super high. Again, I had 84. My friend had 92. Another person I knew had 97. Imagine walking around with a 97% chance of getting breast cancer in your lifetime and not knowing when that's going to happen or if it's going to happen, but 97%. And then imagine on top of that, you've had loved ones in your family dropping like flies, dying from breast cancer, getting ovarian cancer, having pancreatic or melanoma, having all things that are related to that hereditary mutation happening. And then being armed with this piece of information that you have that 97%. And if you were to do this prophylactic surgery, that that would drop your risk from 97 down to single digits. If that's a choice that a woman wants to make, she's not doing that lightly. So for those that are unfamiliar with those stats, Learn a little bit more about it. Have a little bit more compassion and try to empathize with where exactly they're coming from. They're not going into this surgery willy-nilly just because. Whether or not a woman opts for a prophylactic mastectomy or for surveillance if they have one of those hereditary mutations, it is a highly personalized decision. But what I don't want to happen is I don't want any sort of shame or fear of what's being said in the public eye to deter them from doing what they feel is in their best interest medically. Increased screening or prophylactic surgery, that's a conversation that that woman needs to have with their provider and they really need to weigh all of the odds with them and their personal risk. Another gap that needs public attention involves bridging the medical field with that psychosocial world. It's dealing and recognizing that when you are faced with a life-threatening diagnosis, as well as those treatments that follow and efforts to save your life, this requires physical and emotional healing. We're human beings and we have them both. You can't separate the two. I tried. I swear I tried. But it doesn't work that way. We are human and we are going to experience both those physical and emotional elements to this journey. 
education. Know that it's a thing. It happens. We are human. So speak up and bring down the shame. As a society, bring down the shame. Brene Brown, amazing. Go look her up. She's got some incredible speeches and fabulous, fabulous books. But Brene Brown, she even says that vulnerability is the antidote to shame and that it's also the birthplace of love and belonging. And I can promise you, if you have faced your mortality on a very real, tangible level, like never known before, these intense emotions, emotions that seem like they're going to flatten you, they're going to be a play in some way or another. It doesn't mean that you're crazy. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It means that you're human and it means that it's part of this journey as well. Every single person that I have talked to who has faced this has confided in me that they have experienced this on one level or another. So why as a society are we not speaking up about it? Why are we not telling women, hey, that's okay, it's normal, it's part of it? And why do we not have things in place that allow them to get that care that they need? I know that one thing that I would like to see happen in the future, I don't know if this is possible or not, but I'm going to live in my dream world here for a moment. When you're diagnosed with breast cancer, how great would it be if you were granted automatic consultation referrals to your surgeon, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, and a therapist? I'm a huge advocate for therapy now. I used to think that that was great for other people, but not for me. I was one of those people. And then I went and it is life-saving. And I think that everybody could stand to learn more about how they process through their emotions, especially when it comes down to something that's life-threatening. There's going to be feelings. So learn that it's okay and learn how to handle them is going to be crucial for your emotional healing as well. And you can't heal completely if you don't tend to both physical and emotional wounds. So bring down that shame and let's work towards getting women and men that accessibility to care as well. Again, education and accessibility to care are among those biggest barriers that I've noticed. And today we've talked about how they relate to a few of these issues. Bottom line, learn something new. Information empowers us. So educate yourself and work towards educating your community on some of these issues as well. And then two, be an advocate for change. Write a letter to your congressman. Get involved with volunteer work within your community fundraise for research and programs that assist people in your local community. Get involved, speak up, use your voice, and have these conversations. Because when you do it, and the person next to you does it, and then their friends' friends, and so on and so on, it'll begin to spread. And before you know it, change will be made. It happens when we all come together and when we all start having these conversations. It's not one person alone that makes all a difference. It's all of our voices and all of our stories and all of our input combined. Because together, we do weather the storm. I look forward to speaking with you guys again next week. Until then, remember just that, that together, we weather the storm. You are never alone.